1: The Bush administration declares the polar bear is only threatened, not endangered. But medical scientists say the bear is something else.
2: The polar bear is a metabolic marvel. It's able to do things that we could only dream of. And one of the things that's particularly valuable to humans is that when the female bears in the winter den, they put on tremendous amounts of blubber, and yet they don't develop diabetes.
1: Also, John McCain has plans to clean up greenhouse gases. And Michael Recycle, the Green Cape Crusader, has plans to get kids to clean up the environment.
3: Well, I think that this book is important to maybe probably people who don't recycle as much. And it can show them that you should start recycling to make it better for the world.
1: We meet Michael Recycle. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. The polar bear is officially on thin ice. After fighting lawsuits by conservation groups for years, the U.S. Interior Department has reluctantly agreed to add the polar bear to the government's list of threatened animals under the Endangered Species Act. The bears are threatened by the loss of an important part of their habitat, sea ice. Global warming is melting the ice far faster than expected, said Interior Secretary Dirk Kempthorne as he announced his long-awaited decision.
5: When we've looked at what is actually happening in the Arctic, we have found considerably less sea ice than the models are even projecting. This, in my judgment, makes the polar bear a threatened species, one likely to become in danger of extinction in the foreseeable future.
1: But even as Kempthorne identified global warming as a threat, the secretary made it clear that the polar bear listing under the Endangered Species Act would do nothing to limit global warming gases.
5: Listing the polar bear as threatened can reduce avoidable losses of polar bears, but it should not open the door to use the ESA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles, power plants, and other sources. That would be a wholly inappropriate use of the Endangered Species Act. ESA is not the right tool to set U.S. climate policy.
1: In an unusual move, Kempthorne specifically exempted the threat to polar bears from being linked to greenhouse gases. The move allows oil and gas companies to explore and drill in polar bear habitat. Environmentalists say Kempthorne's interpretation of the law turns his decision to little more than a symbolic act— Susan Casey Lefkowitz is an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. It's one of the groups that sued to force the Bush administration to act on behalf of polar bears.
6: This decision seems to be so full of loopholes that um, we're actually wondering how much it's actually going to protect the polar bear. Instead, they seem to talk about business as usual, especially with the oil and gas industry, and that just does not seem compatible with protection of the polar bear.
1: Environmentalists aren't the only critics of Kempthorne's decision property rights advocates, and oil interests aren't happy either, and say they'll file lawsuits to overturn the Interior Department's ruling. But the polar bear is not just an icon of the environmental movement. It could play a critical role in human medical research. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard Medical School is co-editor of the soon-to-be published book Sustaining Life, How Human Health Depends on Biodiversity.
2: The polar bear is a metabolic marvel. It's able to do things that we could only dream of. And one of the things that's particularly valuable to humans is that when the female bears in the winter den, they put on tremendous amounts of blubber, and yet they don't develop diabetes. And we need to sort out how they do that because we have an epidemic of type 2 diabetes related to obesity in our country. And when humans become obese, they become an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Polar bears, however, somehow seem to escape that fate, but we really don't understand how.
1: So the polar bear becomes basically a laboratory animal for us?
2: Uh, In a sense, yes, except that we have to study them in the wild, because the only way they're able to put them on uh, that amount of weight is by eating seal blubber. In fact, gorging on it. They can eat 100 pounds of it at a time. So having them in a lab actually won't help us learn how they do it.
1: Why polar bears? I mean, the polar bear is not like a, a, a human.
2: Well, it turns out that we're a lot more related to a lot of things than some of us would like to believe. You know, the Earth is an extraordinary place with extraordinarily diverse life. That life has adapted to all of these extraordinary places that creatures live, and it is those adaptations that are incredibly valuable to us uh, as humans because they can help us solve some of the most difficult medical problems we face.
1: I was reading that uh, polar bears might help us solve... Osteoporosis.
2: Denning bears, like polar bears, females in particular, spend the winter months not being very active while they're denning. And during this time, they don't lose any bone. If a human spent months without moving, they would lose a quarter or a third of their bone, uh, leading to a condition known as osteoporosis. Somehow denning bears seem to avoid that fate. Osteoporosis is also a major public health problem in the country. These creatures have potentially invaluable information to helping us better treat some of the most widespread diseases in our population in the United States, but worldwide. And to lose them would be an act of perhaps unparalleled folly.
1: Is there another species of bear that is threatened that would help in our understanding of our medical conditions?
2: There are a total of... Five species of bear that are currently listed as threatened with endangered. We really, frankly, don't know what secrets these species may hold. But the reality is that the closer we look at the natural world and the adaptations that are present there, the more we learn about ourselves and how we might understand how our bodies work and how we might better treat them when there's illness.
1: Well, Dr. Bernstein, I want to thank you very much.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Aaron Bernstein is co-editor of the book, Sustaining Life, How Human Health Depends on Biodiversity. Here's a new government statistic that confirms what you already know too well. The price of food is going through the roof. Of course, that's not the technical term. According to federal statisticians, food costs 5% more than a year ago and is increasing at a rate we haven't seen in two decades and it's worse for developing countries. The U.N. says 37 nations are in urgent need of food but can't afford it, triggering fears of even more food riots like those that have rocked Egypt, Bangladesh, Somalia, and Haiti. And yet, as prices soar, so do corporate profits for some companies on the food chain. To chew over food prices, we turn to an economist, indeed the economist. On the line from London is The Economist magazine's globalization expert, John Parker. John, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thank you for inviting me. You know, we've heard about a lot of factors being blamed for the escalation in food prices, the weather, biofuels, you know, India, China eating more meat, weak dollar, high oil. What do you think is driving up the price of of food?
7: All of those, but the two most important for me are the um, India and China eating more meat and biofuels. Um, India and China eating more meat explains like the long run change, which is tightened supplies. Um, The biofuels policy explains why in the last couple of years, prices have suddenly spiked.
1: Well, why would that be? I mean, we've always been producing biofuels. I did stories about, you know, ethanol being produced from corn 30 years ago.
7: Yeah, sure. But in 2005, the US made the biofuels policy a lot more generous and much more American maize, American corn has gone to uh, ethanol in the last couple of years. And now it's something like a third of the crop goes there. And remember, that you know, uh, American maize used to be one of the world's great cereals crops. People around the world used to eat American maize. Now you're consuming in the form of ethanol as much as you're exporting. That never used to be the case.
1: India in, and in China, are they really eating that much more meat?
7: Well, yes. I mean, they've been eating a little bit more over 20, 30 years, and, it, you know, it mounts up. China eats about, per head, this is, about three times as much pork, which is the main meat, as they did in 1980. You don't need a big change, but, you know, like 1% a year over 30 years, it makes a huge difference. And it's kind of inefficient in the use of grain. To produce a tonne of beef requires eight tonnes worth of grain. So it kind of ratchets up uh, the effect on the grain markets if you are eating more meat.
1: So the U.S. taxpayer is getting a double whammy here. That is, they're paying the subsidies for the ethanol production, and they're paying higher prices at the supermarket for
7: food. Well, they're not the only ones, of course. So The Europeans have been specialising in this particular piece of insanity for years and years and years. I mean, we in Europe subsidise our food even more than you guys do, so you are getting hit twice over, and sort of so are most other rich countries. Um, and what's really particularly nuts is that the European countries, particularly France and Germany, are currently reacting by saying, uh-oh, high prices for food, we've got to subsidise our farmers more.
1: So it sounds to me that you're saying that there are structural problems here uh, and cultural changes and economic changes that aren't going to go away. This is not a, a bubble.
7: I don't think this is a bubble. Partly for those uh, long-run changes I was talking about, you know, the uh, Chinese and Indians and others eating more meat. The end of cheap food, which we had for 40 years, I think it's over. And the world will adjust slowly. What about the people that making money out of all
1: this. I was looking at uh, Monsanto, Cargill, uh, Archer Daniel Midlands. They're making windfall profits. I mean, extraordinarily high profit margins.
7: Yeah, they are. But look, for me, the most important people who are making money out of this are not kind of rich American multinationals. It's poor peasant farmers. And if you look back over 50 years, these guys have really had a rough time. Essentially, we in the West, in Europe and in the US, have been kind of dumping our food surpluses on the rest of the world. And they haven't been able to make much of a living. Now, for the first time in, you know, living memory, uh, food prices in, you know, upstate Bangladesh are way, way above the cost of production. Um, Bangladesh has been hurt quite hard because it's got a large number of poor people in cities. But there have been celebrations out in the country because now the state is paying four times what it costs to grow rice. And the rice harvest has been good. And these very, very poor people are beginning to benefit. If the price of oil were to come down, would that help things? It would a little bit because oil's a major component of fertilisers. And fertilisers are, you know, really, really important as an input to farmers. But I don't think it would change the basic sort of supply-demand balance very quickly. So I would expect it to make a marginal difference, but not, you know, it wouldn't halve the price of of wheat or something like that.
1: John, have you been to the supermarket lately?
7: Um, I go every weekend. Yeah, Yeah. well, I I went this (laughs) weekend and I got sticker shock. Uh, but just imagine. I don't know how much of your um, weekly budget goes on food, but um, for me, it's not that much. Imagine if half of your salary went on food, as happens in poor countries. Imagine the sticker shock they're getting.
1: Well, you work for The Economist, but I'm reading your rival magazine here, Time, a recent issue. Since 2003, they say Wonder Bread's up 74%, pork chops up 124% ribeye steak 64%, bananas 41%. Can we expect prices to keep on going
7: up in the near future? If I knew that, I would be making large sums of money on the futures markets. But my guess is that prices will begin to stabilize later on this year. The truth of the matter is that almost everyone, including me, was surprised when prices continued to rise in the first half of this year. So I'm pretty reluctant to forecast an end to these price rises soon.
1: Boy, this is complicated stuff. John, I'm glad we have an economist to help us sort through it.
7: (laughs) Thanks very much for inviting me.
1: Speaking to us from London, John Parker, the globalization expert for the British magazine, The Economist. Coming up, John McCain talks the talk about climate change. Straight ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. On the campaign trail, Republican presidential hopeful John McCain has been talking the talk about energy and environmental issues and recently putting more and more distance between himself and President Bush on climate change. On the stump, McCain talks passionately about global warming, but is he walking the walk? Living on Earth's Jeff Young has been investigating McCain's campaign rhetoric and his voting record in the Senate.
8: When Senator John McCain focuses on climate change, his campaign managers like to put him in a photo-op-friendly setting, like a solar equipment company, or in this case, the Vestas Wind Turbine Facility in Portland, Oregon. Please
1: say hello to Senator McCain. Thank Thank you.
8: McCain's been a leader on climate change. Five years ago, he authored the first major carbon cap bill to reach the Senate floor. And he brought climate scientists to the Capitol in nearly a dozen congressional hearings. Now he wants independent-minded voters in battleground states like Oregon to know that on global warming, he's no George W. Bush. Good stewardship, prudence and simple common sense demand, demand
9: that we act to meet the challenge and act quickly. I will not shirk the mantle of leadership that the United States bears. I will not permit eight long years to pass without serious action on serious challenges.
8: But as McCain distances himself from Bush, he also needs to reassure Republicans who remain concerned about the economic effects of a cap on carbon emissions. McCain says his cap-and-trade approach will work with the free market to encourage innovation and investment in cleaner energy sources and he would allow CO2-intensive industry to make generous use of carbon offsets, things like paying farmers to capture the methane from animal enclosures. McCain says economists agree with him that offsets can keep the price of carbon emissions, and thus the price of energy, from rising sharply.
9: We want to turn the American economy
8: toward cleaner and safer energy sources, and you can't achieve that by imposing costs that the American economy cannot sustain. McCain says he will use diplomacy and trade to try to bring China into an international agreement on greenhouse gases. And in another break from Bush policy, he says he would not allow China's inaction to prevent the U.S. from moving ahead. If the efforts to negotiate an international solution that includes China and India do not succeed, we still have an obligation to act. McCain's targets for greenhouse gas reductions would have the U.S. return to its 1990 level of emissions by the year 2020. By mid-century, the U.S. would be 60 percent below that level. McCain policy advisor Doug holtz Aiken says it's a plan designed to strike a balance between climate science and political science.
5: So in an effort to make sure we get something done, he's tailored his proposal to be good on the science, good on the economy and hopefully allow us to have some leadership in this issue in the world.
8: McCain's long-term target of 60 percent reductions is weaker than that proposed by Democratic candidates Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, who want 80 percent cuts in greenhouse gases. But Eileen Clausen at the Pew Center on Global Climate Change says the short-term targets are probably more important in avoiding dangerous environmental damage.
4: I think he was uh, good on the early date uh, 2005 levels in 2012, as aggressive as we have seen in the United States. Yes, his 60 uh, percent is less um, than some of the 80 percent, and we probably do need 80 percent, um, but there will be lots of time to come back and actually redo that final number as
8: we learn more and more about the science. Clawson gives McCain's plan high marks, But other environmentalists are critical, especially when it comes to McCain's support for nuclear power. McCain says he wants the government to help the nuclear industry build 20 new nuclear reactors by the end of his first term as president. League of Conservation Voters president Gene Karpinski says that's the wrong place to put scarce government dollars. You know, one of the ironies is he did his event at a wind power facility, and he's unfortunately consistently opposed tax credits for wind power. On the other hand, he supports tax subsidies for a 50 year old industry uh, that doesn't know what to do with its waste, the nuclear power industry. So that really makes no sense. Karpinski's group gives McCain a weak 24% rating for his congressional votes on environmental issues. McCain opposed a renewable electricity standard to require utilities to generate 10% of their power through wind, solar, or other clean energy sources. And more recently, McCain missed a chance to deliver the one thing the renewable energy companies need most. Let's go back to Senator McCain's speech at the Vestas facility.
1: Wind is modern energy, and Vestas is number one in modern energy.
8: Just before Vestas America President Jens Sobi introduced the senator, he made this appeal for support. We need
1: a long-term energy policy and we need a short-term extension of the production tax credit.
8: Please. wind power only works with government support. In Denmark, where Vestas is headquartered, wind power enjoys generous, stable subsidies, making it the world's leader in wind turbines. But in the U.S., tax credits for wind power come in short periods of a year or two, and they are set to expire this year. Dan Weiss at the liberal-leaning Center for American Progress says the Senate considered a bill this winter that would have extended those tax credits.
5: Last December, there was a vote to shift about $2 billion a year in tax breaks for big oil and invest them instead in clean, renewable energy like wind, solar,
8: and geothermal power. That vote failed by one vote. The only person who didn't vote was John McCain. McCain advisor Holtz Aiken blames the busy presidential campaign schedule.
5: He had campaign commitments. He was unable to attend the vote. And uh, you know, it, that's one of many votes where he's been asked, you know, what would have happened? You can't relive
10: history.
8: As it turns out, McCain had a chance to relive that vote just two months later. In February, the same energy tax proposal came up again. Again, just one vote would have made the difference, and again, McCain was absent. On the day of that vote, McCain was in Washington, about a 15-minute drive from the Capitol Dome, speaking to the Conservative Political Action Conference. Since then, he's devoted more of his time to campaign fundraising— Sheila Crumholtz tracks campaign money at the nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics, which runs the website Open Secrets. Crumholtz says McCain has had remarkable success in recent months, getting money from the energy sector, including oil and gas. John McCain is now the number one recipient of oil and gas money in this cycle, with $515,000 so far. She says that's probably not all the oil and gas money McCain's getting. Like most campaigns, McCain uses so called money bundlers to raise cash. These influential people pledge to raise a certain amount from acquaintances. McCain's bundlers include some big names from big oil, like Houston oilman and former Commerce Secretary Bob Mossbacher, Kit Moncrief of the Moncrief oil family, and Texas oil lobbyist Gaylord Huey Jr. Together, those three have pledged to raise nearly half a million dollars. Krumholtz says that might clash with McCain's maverick image.
0: There will be something of a rhetorical dance uh, explaining both his platform, which has been so stridently opposed to special access for special interests, at the same time that he's collecting more and more money from these very interests.
8: There's no doubt McCain's been a climate crusader, and his campaign insists he remains committed to the cause. But a weak voting record on clean energy and his newfound friends in big oil cloud that image and could make it tougher for McCain to win over the climate-conscious voters he's seeking. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
1: To hear more of Jeff's interview with Senator McCain's climate advisor, check out our website at LOE.org. The Galapagos is a windswept archipelago, famous for inspiring Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Now even the wind there is evolving, thanks to a new generation of wind power technology. On the island of San Cristobal, you'll find a new breed of wind turbine that supplies half of the island's electricity. Spectrum Radio's Errico Guizo traveled to the Galapagos
11: and brought back our report. San Cristobal is part of a group of small islands in the Pacific, form one of the most exquisite places on Earth, the Galápagos Archipelago. Every year more than hundred thousand tourists come to the Galápagos to get close to its extraordinary fauna, to snorkel with hammerhead sharks, hang out with giant tortoises, or bask on the beach with sea lions. Charles Darwin visited the Galápagos in 1835. The unique creatures he found here captured his imagination and helped him realize that species evolved by means of natural selection. Nature-loving visitors now flock to the islands in hopes of seeing what Darwin saw. But today the Galápagos, located about 700 miles off Ecuador, is a very different place. Tourism has increased rapidly, and so has the local population, which now is more than 20,000. There's also lots of hotels, shops, restaurants and vehicles. The tourism and population boom brought a higher demand for electricity. Until recently, the islands rely entirely on diesel generators. The fuel for the generators, and also for boats and vehicles, arrives by oil tanker from mainland Ecuador. Seven years ago, a tanker ran aground and spilled 150,000 gallons of fuel into San Cristobal's Harbor. Since then, the government of Ecuador intensified efforts to free the Galapagos from fossil fuels. The government teamed up with the United Nations Development Program and the E8, an international consortium of electricity companies, to launch the San Cristobal Wind Project.
2: This project is uh, called a high penetration wind diesel hybrid system.
11: Jim Tolan is an American engineer and one of the project managers. He says that the goal of the $10 million project is to supply half the island's electricity on average with the 2.4 megawatt wind farm. San Cristobal's system is a wind-diesel hybrid because it combines wind power and diesel generation. Toland says the diesel generators provide electricity in the months when there is little or no wind.
2: The high wind periods, we might actually be putting 80% of the grid energy from, from wind. So it's a very high percentage.
11: The 3 wind turbines perch atop a hill on the highlands of San Cristobal, 10 miles from town. The steel towers stand as tall as 15-story buildings and hold three-bladed rotors. Through the dense fog, it's difficult to make out the blades, each about the length of a jumbo 747 wing. Tolan leads me through a small door into Turbine number 1. We put on safety harnesses and hook them to a steel cable to climb a narrow ladder that stretches all the way to the top of the tower. Inside this giant white walled tube, with fluorescent lights flickering and electronic equipment beeping, is like being in a spaceship. At the top of the ladder, we squeeze through an opening to get inside the turbine's uppermost structure. A massive piece of steel and iron the size of a Volkswagen Beetle sits before us. It's the generator, the heart of the machine. Batteries are normally used in conventional wind-diesel hybrids, but here they are not used for storage. An advanced control system automatically reduces or increases the turbine's power output, according to demand. Not only is the system less expensive than conventional hybrids, it's also designed to use as little diesel generation as possible. The San Cristobal Wind Project presented many technical and logistical hurdles to Tolan and his team, including how to bring construction equipment and materials to this tiny island. But in the end, what proved more challenging were the environmental aspects of the project. 85% of the island consists of protected national park. Tolan's team located a site in a cattle grazing area outside the national park for the wind farm. But still, the team had to make sure that the turbines would not disturb the ecosystem, including the nesting grounds of an endangered seabird, the Galapagos Petrol. Eventually, studies concluded that turbines presented little threat to the Petrol, and that transmission lines should be buried to minimize obstructions to the bird's flight path. San Cristóbal residents soon were on board with the project and are now proud to be the first place in the Galápagos and all of Ecuador to use wind power. Patricio Andrade heads Elect Galápagos, the publicly-owned utility. He says the new system is a big step for the archipelago.
10: Many years ago, we had to use oil lamps here, in the rural areas, for example. Now we have a hybrid wind-diesel system. Twenty, thirty years
11: ago, at least for me, this was not something I would even dream of. After seeing blue-footed boobies, brown pelicans, marine iguanas, and the famed giant tortoises, you can't help feeling a bit like Darwin when you walk around the Galápagos. In his journal, later published as The Voyage of the Beagle, Darwin wrote, The archipelago is a little world within itself. Both in space and time, we seem to be brought somewhat near to that great fact, the mystery of mysteries, the first appearance of new beings on this earth. Darwin also noted that uniqueness of the archipelago means it's extremely fragile. Now, as we move forward into the 21st century, the survival of the Galapagos depends on finding a balance between the native species and foreign ones, including humans. For Living on Earth, America Gizzo.
1: Our story about the Galapagos wind farm comes to us courtesy of Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum, the magazine of technology insiders. Maybe you heard that old joke that goes, if your refrigerator is running, go catch it. Well, one of our listeners is doing just that. Steve McArthur of Canton, Ohio, caught up with his refrigerator and found a way to save energy. Here's his cool fix for a hot planet.
0: Approximately 10 years ago when I purchased my home refrigerator, I noticed that it seemed to be using quite a bit of energy. It ran pretty often in the summertime, and I thought there's got to be a way to uh, cut down on the energy usage So I documented the amount of time that the refrigerator was running and I went to my local home supply uh, store and purchased a couple of sheets of one-inch foam insulation. I secured it to the refrigerator with tape, two-inch tape, and was careful not to cover any of the vents uh, on the refrigerator. I covered the top, the sides, and the front door. As I uh, had the refrigerator in operation, I, I again timed how long it was running to keep it cool. And I, in my uh, estimation, it, I used approximately one-third as much energy as I had before insulating. Uh, some people don't like the looks of styrofoam insulation on uh, the refrigerator. So when I have guests over, I simply just take off the insulation off the front door and set it aside until my company leaves. And uh, over the last couple of years, I've replaced the tape on the insulation with magnetic strips that have adhesive on them. So it's really easy just to pull the insulation off, set it aside. And then when uh, I'm by myself, I just put the insulation right back on the refrigerator. It's worked really well for me.
1: Steve MacArthur says insulating his refrigerator means a cooler kitchen in the summer hot stuff, Steve. And for sending your cool fix our way, we're going to send you a very cool metallic blue living on earth tire gauge. Use it to keep your tires correctly inflated and you'd save hundreds of dollars a year in fuel costs. And if we all did it, the nation could save over a billion gallons of gas. That's according to a study from Carnegie Mellon University. If you or someone you know has a cool fix for a hot planet, let us know. If we use your idea on the air, you too will get an LOE tire gauge. Our listener line is 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email coolfix. That's one word at LOE.org. That's coolfix at LOE.org. And don't be shy. We're always happy to hear what you think about our show. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Coming up, we sing the praises of the car and truck electric. Stay plugged in to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The Los Angeles seaport is the largest in the country. Cargo ships from Asia arrive laden with all variety of stuff, from electronic devices to toys to clothes, all packed in steel containers. Giant cranes then load the containers onto tractor-trailer trucks, which haul them away. These heavy trucks are a major source of soot or particles in the L.A. region. But soon the port will clean up its act— when 25 all-electric trucks arrive. The electric trucks won't just help reduce air pollution. As Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, officials predict they could spark a change in seaports around the world.
6: 40,000 times a day, heavy diesel rigs scurry in, out, and around the port of Los Angeles, picking up, dropping off, and just waiting around, idling. Dirty air and noise are two of neighbors' and workers' main complaints about the port. So when David Freeman became chief of the Harbor Commission two years ago, he took on these issues with zeal.
9: When I got here on this commission, I was handed this report. It said we're going to cut pollution in half back to what it was in 2001. And I looked at the report, and it said that we're now causing 3,500 premature deaths And I said, well, half of that is 1,750 people. We can't kill 1,750 people. We have to have a standard of reaching healthy air.
6: Freeman, who had decades of experience running large electric utilities, soon began to push for the creation of an all-electric truck.
9: We've been told by the experts that whether it's LNG or biodiesel, whatever you burn, if you burn something, you're going to have a tiny, small particulate matter. And these folks are right there at lung level breathing that stuff. So, to have a vehicle that will not burn anything just run on electricity is a fundamental cleanup. This is not show, this is really tech.
10: Let's start it up here. It's like a lot quieter than your standard diesel truck, huh?
3: That's yeah, real nice.
6: Michael Flugel is a vocational laborer at the port and drives a lot of heavy equipment.
10: We're real proud of it. When I got involved with the truck myself, then you know, I had my doubts, uh, but we've threw everything but the kitchen sink at it, and it just keeps performing. So it's it's, it's short is spectacular. It's, uh, uh, we've hauled as much as sixty-eight thousand pounds on this truck, and it just keeps keeps on ticking, you know.
6: Experts agree running a vehicle on electricity, even when half of it comes from coal, as here, is much cleaner than burning diesel. But David Freeman says the port plans to run the trucks on solar and already has the first megawatt out to bid. The person who shepherded this project from let's do it to here it is, is Balwinder Samra. He's an electric vehicle expert who helped golf carts go electric and sold electric delivery trucks in Mexico. He remembers when electric forklifts were new.
12: I still remember customers used to not believe us when we would go in and say this one is electric. And I was very surprised once the economic analysis got around, that industry switched very fast.
6: SAMRA was struck by how short the hauling distances were, usually less than 25 miles to regional warehouses and railroad connections, and often less than half a mile from one spot in the port to another.
12: It was an ideal opportunity for electric vehicles
6: and with the cost of diesel skyrocketing, the timing seemed right, too. The electric trucks can cost $70,000 more than diesel trucks up front, but battery recharging saves money compared to fuel.
12: Just as an example, if we tried to do this in 1980s, we had dollar a gallon type stuff. So I would be right now telling you we can save you $5,000 a year. Not, not as compelling, is it? Today, because of the pricing, Uh, We have a $35,000 argument, which at least perks up somebody's ears and say, let's talk about this more.
6: The team chose traditional lead-acid batteries for price and reliability. They hope a next-generation battery will increase charging speed and capacity. To keep the trucks operating, workers have to recharge them four hours at night and also briefly during shift changes. They use a smart charger that can charge four vehicles at a time and adjust the flow of juice to each one, depending on need. Samura's company, Balcon, is still working out the kinks in those distribution algorithms. He says when the frustrations of new product development weigh him down, he remembers the reception the first truck got from port employees.
12: There were like 20 people whipping out their cell phones and trying to take the, the images of that thing. It was uh, very exciting.
6: Officials think half the 8,000 trucks needed at the port could be electric. That could potentially eliminate 200 tons annually of one principal pollutant, NOx. Even before the port of L.A.'s electric trucks are announced, Samra says he's been deluged with calls. A lot
12: of interest from West Coast ports, Canada, Italy, uh, Pacific Asia. There's a lot of people calling us. uh, It just seems like a lot of people were waiting for this to happen.
6: Over the last decade, the Southern California seaports have been shaken by their reputation as the largest polluters in the nation's most polluted region. Angry communities have sued and shut down nearly all port expansion. Now the new leadership at the ports hopes they'll be able to do something that didn't seem possible a few years ago, expand and get much cleaner at the same time. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles.
1: Nissan Motor Company has announced plans that could leave other car companies eating its dust. The Japanese automaker says it's coming out with a whole fleet of plug-in electric vehicles that will put a smile on your face as you buzz past gas stations. John O'Dell is senior editor of the auto website GreenCarAdvisor.com, and he joins me on the line. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us.
10: Well, thank you much for having me. Appreciate it. So
1: what does Nissan have up its sleeve?
10: Uh, if we knew that, we'd, uh, we'd be writing tons of copy. Uh, what we do know is that uh, the company has said in the past that it uh, will launch a commercially viable all-electric, which means battery electric uh, car, in the United States uh, in 2010. They've sort of signed it into concrete now. It's, uh, it's official. It's part of Nissan's new five-year plan. Uh, Carlos Golan uh, went public with that the other day.
1: He, he's, the, he's the head of Nissan.
10: The head of Nissan and of uh, its uh, French partner and co-owner, uh, Renault. But in any event, uh, he's gone past the point of no return. He's made a global promise to do this, and it would be uh, pretty embarrassing for the company if they, if they weren't able to follow up on it.
1: So they're playing it close to their chest. We don't really know what these cars are going to look like.
10: And we have an idea. They showed a a car at the New York Auto Show uh, earlier this year that they said would provide a lot of clues, uh, and that car was a uh, modified version of uh, a vehicle that uh, is a big seller over in Japan called the Nissan Cube. You could say it's a Nissan version of the uh, Scion XB, a very boxy, It looks sort of like a refrigerator box uh, uh, on wheels.
1: And they're going to have more than just this boxy cube.
10: Yes, uh, uh, Gowan has said that he intends to have, you have to remember the man's French, uh, sexy cars uh, with electric power. So we're expecting to see sedans, sports coupe, and more, you know, utilitarian vehicles as well.
1: You know, Mr. O'Dell, if there's a plug-in electric car in my future, in your future, where's all that electricity coming from?
10: Well, there's a debate about that. One operating theory is that most people would be using the the vehicles during the day and recharging at night when demand for power is relatively nil compared to what it is on a hot afternoon.
1: Of course, these are zero emissions from the tailpipe of the automobile. There's still emissions that you have to have Correct,
10: yeah. There's, there's no free lunch. When you're making electricity, you're producing uh, CO2 and other emissions, uh, and uh, in some places it's cleaner than others. Power plants that burn coal are, are relatively dirty, even if the coal's relatively clean. They're a lot dirtier than plants that generate power from um, natural gas, hydroelectric, wind. You know, we're going to see a, a slow revolution in this country, but a revolution nonetheless in, in how we generate power and, and how we use it.
1: With all these drivers in the future pulling up and plugging in, do we have the the grid infrastructure to handle this much of a demand of electricity?
10: The theory is that, yes, we do, and we're not talking about putting 10 million electric cars on the road tomorrow. We're talking about hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands, and it's going to give the electricity providers time to uh, to build up what they need to build up. One of the things that's still sorely lacking... Uh, And and it's a case with all alternative fuels, is a a national infrastructure so that you can get in the vehicle and drive it from, you know, here to there and have fuel everywhere you're at.
1: We have a company here near Boston called A123. They make batteries and they can get, what, 160,000 miles, they say, without any gas.
10: Oh, yeah. It's doable. Um, Electric cars existed before gasoline cars almost – and at one time, there were more electric cars on the roads in the, in the U.S. than there were, there were anything else back in the 1910s and 12s. But to make them reliable, to make them, uh, you know, run the way we expect our cars to run is still a challenge. But yeah, uh, 100, 200 miles on batteries, uh, zero tailpipe emissions, it's all possible. It's, uh, and, and we're going to see it. It will be coming.
1: So back to the future.
10: And faster than a lot of us uh, uh, used to think.
1: John O'Dell is senior editor of the website, greencaradvisor.com, part of the Edmonds family of auto information sites. Mr. O'Dell, thank you very much.
10: Appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you and your audience.
1: Happy motoring. Thank you. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Michael Recycle. Faster than a speeding windmill. Able to leap stinking garbage dumps in a single bound. Crush plastic with his bare hands. Michael Recycle is showing kids how to recycle one rhyme at a time. He's the superhero in a new book by Ellie Bethel. We challenge Michael Recycle to a tough test. Nine-year-old bookworm Anna Carton-Smith.
3: The big picture is that there's a town that doesn't know how to recycle or doesn't know how to reuse things or how to not um, pollute everything and stuff. So when this guy comes um, named Michael, he likes to, I guess, help people in recycling. So he tells them how they could help. And then they try to do it, and they accomplish a lot.
1: What age group do you think uh, this is good for?
3: Well, I think... It would be really fun for five, six, seven, and probably eight. But, like, it doesn't mean that, like, my age or older people might not like it too. It's just that I think that would be um, a very good age to read this book.
1: Well, let's read something from a book and see, see what it sounds like, okay?
3: Okay. There once was a town called Aberdu Rimey where the garbage was left to rotten and slimy it never smelled fresh the air was all hazy but people did nothing they got rather lazy
1: would you like to live in abu
3: not at first how come because it's all filthy and nobody everybody litters and it's gross
1: what do you think of the rhymes
3: it's um i think it's really cool how they rhymed it and it's really like like smart and how everything fits together and then something happened that none could exclaim. It wasn't a bird, and it wasn't a plane. A green cape crusader soared through the air with a colander hat on top of his hair. I am Microcycle, Recycle, and I have a plan, but I need your help, everyone to a man. The sky and the river are smelly and brown. Soon 50-foot bugs will take over your town. You've got to recycle. You've got to act soon before all your trash reaches to the moon.
1: Don't you know all about recycling now? I mean, you're nine years old.
3: Yes. Like, you can recycle, like, old food and make it dirt.
1: Isn't that smelly?
3: It's smelly, but it helps.
1: Yeah, how does it help?
3: It helps the dirt and soil and, I guess, the worms, I guess.
1: (laughs) So what do you need a book to tell you about recycling?
3: Well, it's just also fun. So say I was nine-year-olds and I didn't know, this would help me a lot. But even if I do know, then it'd still be really fun.
1: Hey, do you recycle? Yes. You really do. You don't ever throw away plastic stuff? And...
3: Maybe I do sometimes, but I do recycle a lot.
1: Okay, and now let's go all the way back to here. Ah. Uh, there you go.
3: Then he crunched a can, he gave them a wink, and vanished from sight before they could blink. So if you should see a green silhouette, streaking the skies, please don't get upset. The noise you hear, that clung and that thunk, it's just our friend Michael recycling old junk.
1: (laughs) You know what I like about this picture?
3: The guy's like, oh, I think he's singing.
1: No, he's screaming. He's got like his tonsils hanging out. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a brother or sister, younger brother or sister?
3: Yes, I have a brother.
1: Oh, yeah. How old is he?
3: He's six, almost seven.
1: Would you want him to read
3: this? Yeah, I would because then it would show him to recycle and stuff because he doesn't know a lot about it, but still.
1: Do you think? What do you think? Is it important to have books about recycling, or you already knew this stuff? I mean, here you are composting. And you well,
3: taught. I well I think that this book is important to maybe probably people who don't recycle as much, and it can show them that you should start recycling to make it better for the world. But, like, it reminds me, too, again, to just keep doing that, and yeah.
1: Well, Anna, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I did, too. Anna Carton-Smith is nine years old and lives in Somerville, Massachusetts. The book is Michael Recycle by Ellie Beckham. On the next Living on Earth, what's living on Mars? Scientists will soon find out.
12: We're looking for microbial life. We don't expect to find little things scurrying around Mars or anywhere in the solar system. What we're hoping to find, like in the dry valleys, is a simple microbial life that has evolved and survived for billions of years.
1: Pity I was hoping for little green men on the red planet. Join us for the Flight of the Phoenix Mars mission on the next Living on Earth. We leave you this week in a Brazilian forest. After a few days of heavy rain, the Mata Atlântica forest is dripping. This biologically diverse habitat has many species found nowhere else and is one of the most threatened forests in the world. Eloisa Matur recorded the piercing calls of the ant thrush, joined by the red breasted toucan and a piping guan. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler, Sarah Calkins, and Oregon Public Broadcasting. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rossano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Alison Lyrish dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. Steve Kerwit is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
4: PAX World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com.
6: PRI, Public Radio International.